welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text message at 209-340-3115. Have an amazing rest of your day. Uh, well, welcome, everybody. By, by way of introduction, I need to tell you what's been rattling around in my head for the last couple of uh, weeks as I've been gearing up for our time together today. Uh, I am, on the one hand, very excited to be teaching this passage today, uh, but I am also just a little bit apprehensive. I am excited because I have the chance to tell you today the unfiltered, explicit, complete gospel. I have the chance to share with you how mankind is reconciled back to the Father, back, back to the, our Creator, our God. And this gospel, this good news, has the chance to revolutionize every facet of your life for the better. It could change everything in your life for the better, your present and your future to come. Now hear me, I didn't say it would make everything easier. I did not say that. But it will make things dramatically, dramatically better. And that to me, the potential that that could happen today, like you could walk out of this place changed by God, you could be more free than you have ever been in your life. That to me, man, is like Christmas morning. It does not get much better than that. Here's where my apprehension comes in. My apprehension comes in because I know just how easy it is for you to not hear correctly the gospel that's going to get laid before you. I know how, how easy it is for you to fall into the same trap that Isaiah and Jesus both talk about. That you would see with eyes that don't really see. That you'll hear with ears that don't really hear. And, and what, what they meant by that is you're carrying in preconceived notions of how Jesus works, of how Christianity works. And those preconceived notions contort they distort the gospel that's going to get laid before you. And I know this happens easily because it happened to me for years. Like, I grew up in and around church, man. I, I have a stout Christian pedigree. Uh, mom and dad that love each other, love the Lord. My grandfather is one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard in my life. Grandparents who were missionaries in, uh, great-grandparents, missionaries in Africa. Uh, aunt and uncle, missionaries in Africa. I was the president of my junior high Christian club. Sunday school, church camp, youth group. I mean, I did it all, and I completely missed the gospel. Enslaved to a perverted form of Christianity. Here's, here's how I internalized the gospel in the past. This is how I thought it worked. I thought the way man is saved, you, you got to go to Jesus and say a prayer. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Call that a sinner's prayer. I thought you got to go to Jesus, say that prayer. That gets you into the club. And then you got to maintain your membership by doing more good deeds than bad deeds. That's what keeps you in the club. And if that ever gets inverted, you start doing more sin than good works, your membership gets revoked. So that system worked when I was a kid, but then as soon as I hit my teenage years, I'm sinning left and right. 
And it created this downward death spiral of, sh- of shame and sin and guilt. Like, I cannot tell you how many times I must have prayed the sinner's prayer. Because I thought, well, the previous time, maybe I didn't pray it hard enough. I guess it didn't stick. So this is the time, God. I'm going to mean it this time. And I would make these promises to God. God, I'm never going to sin like that again. This is the time where I change. This is the time where I turn over a new leaf. I'm never going to sin like that again. I'm so sorry. I promise this is the time where it's different. And I'd leave church feeling like me and God are on good terms. And sometimes that very same day, right back into the same sin that tripped me up. And now the shame and the guilt is monumental. What a dirtbag I am. I can't even keep my promises to God for a day. He must hate me. He must hate. He must look down on me and be so displeased. So I'm just going to kind of hide from him. And I'm just going to stay over in my sin. I'm just going to stay and wallow in the muck in the mire because there's no way he could take me back. I made all these elaborate promises and I failed again. This cycle sound familiar to anyone? And so wash, rinse, repeat. I I did that for years. Repent, make these promises, fail, hide in the shame, in the guilt, in the sin. Until eventually I got to the point where, you know what, Jesus? You just heap shame on me. You just heap guilt on me. I'm sick of feeling guilty. You stick to yourself. I'll just do life my way. Uh, looks like, Jesus, I'm going to hell because I can't do what you're asking me to do. So if I'm going to go to hell, I might as well have fun. I, I literally remember thinking that. I, I keep trying, but this isn't working. It was slavery. And I'm worried you're going you're gonna to walk out of here under those chains. Like, I'm worried if you've got a Catholic background. I'm worried I'm going to lay before you the gospel and you're going to go, it can't be that simple. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, Jesus. But, but also, you, you got to do communion. You got to take the sacraments. You got catechism, confession. I'm worried if you've got a Protestant, a more evangelical background. I'm worried I'm going to lay the gospel before you. And you're going to go, it can't be that simple. It can't be that. It's got to be Jesus and I've got to serve, right? He loves me more when I'm serving. He loves me more when I'm giving. He, he loves me more when I'm a part of a group. He loves me more when I, I don't smoke, I don't cuss, I don't drink, I don't dance, I don't watch R-rated movies, the, the Baptist Ten Commandments, right? You've heard those? No fun. You're more holy when you're really boring. I'm worried you're going to walk out with those chains on you. My hope, and what I've been praying, is that the Spirit of God would give you eyes that see, ears that hear. You would walk out of here, and your soul would scream at the top of its lungs, Christ alone. And in that, you would find not just a freedom from sin, but a power to walk in obedience that you have never tasted before. Let me set up what's going to go on today. You may notice in your notes, we don't have any fill in the blanks. Uh, That's not because I didn't do them. Uh, Here's what I found, though. I have found that sometimes when we do fill in the blanks, uh, you get caught up on just trying to keep up with the blanks, and you miss what the text is saying. Or if you're a punk like me, you try to anticipate what the pastor's going to say. Oh, that's grace, dummy. He ain't pick this guy out any day of the week. 
and I didn't want there to be distractions. I wanted you to just hear what the book's got to say because the stakes are too high to miss the gospel today. But we also know some of you learn well by writing, so there's ample space. If the Lord prompts you, man, i got to write this down. This is a good point. Write it down. Okay? Galatians 2 is our passage today. Let me set up what's happening. Paul is dismantling a heresy that has infected the Galatian church. Uh, This region of Galatia, a string of churches in central Turkey, blossoming young new church, They've been infiltrated by a heresy from these guys called Judaizers. And they've showed up saying, Jesus is cool. Yeah, 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 Jesus. But you also need to keep the Mosaic law. Otherwise, you're not going to heaven. And here's a a point they were hammering. Men, you got to be circumcised. And for some reason, the membership of men dropped dramatically. Like you thought it was hard when we asked you to serve for October Blessed. Imagine if, imagine if I stood up here, hey, you want to get to heaven, men? Snip, snip, sorry, I don't have any other options. Paul hears about this, puts on the brass knuckles, and starts to war against this heresy. He starts to beat this heresy into a pulp. He destroys it, pulls it apart systematically. This is not the gospel. You've been bewitched, Galatians. You've been deceived. You've bought into a lie. I want to show you freedom. So let me pray, and we'll get going with verse 11. Jesus, we need your help. Spirit of God, I just simply pray you would open our eyes. Give us eyes that see, ears that hear. And it's for your wonderful name I pray. Amen. Verse 11, we're going to see a, a throwdown of, of two titans, Paul and Peter, probably the two top dog apostles. Uh, Paul sees something that Peter's doing, and, and he's got he's to confront him. Peter's out of step with the gospel. And, and the way this text is going to work, Paul confronts Peter, and then he's going to go into like an expository. He's going to orate. He's, he's got a diatribe of what he's got to say about why he confronted Peter. He's going to explain, Peter, this is why you're out of step. So here's kind of the appetizer. And then verse 15 through the end is when we get to the main course. Let's start with the appetizer. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter, just another name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face. I love that. I didn't gossip. I didn't go about his back. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, those are the Judaizers, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here's what's happening. Peter has been hanging out with Gentiles, which used to be a no-no. Under the Mosaic law, they couldn't do that. Jews were to separate themselves from the Gentiles, but he's been hanging out with Gentiles. He's also been eating what Gentiles eat, which used to be a no-no. Here's when it changed. Acts chapter 10, Jesus himself shows up to Peter and says, Peter, guess what? 
all the dietary regulations, all that stuff in the Old Testament about can't eat bacon, can't eat shellfish, all that stuff, that was a picture of the purity to come that I, Jesus, would fulfill. So Jesus tells Peter, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Don't call foods unclean that I'm telling you now are clean. Modern translation, Peter, have a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> have some shrimp tacos. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And then Peter starts preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and you know what happens? These people that, that the Jews are supposed to separate from, they're saved and filled with the Spirit just like the Jews are. So Peter's mind is blown. Oh my goodness, this thing's going global. God's not going to just save Jews. He's going to save Gentiles. That's good news for all of us. Because I think most of us in here are Gentiles. He's going to save the world with this message. And so they get to Acts 15. They have a huge council. Jerusalem council. What do we do with this? He's saving Gentiles. The dietary laws are no longer binding. He's torn down the wall between Jew and Gentile. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. There's just Christ follower. And, and so they decide, man, don't, don't eat meat that's sacrificed to idols and, and love your Gentile brothers. And, and that's what they land on. So Peter's hanging out with these Gentiles, eating the bacon cheeseburgers with them. And the Judaizers show up. And they go, Peter, what are you doing? You're not keeping the law. You're sinning. You're hanging out with these filthy Gentiles. And Peter, in an instant, regresses. Regresses back to what he knew. And Paul sees it. Paul goes, what are you doing, dude? You're out of step with the gospel. This is not the gospel we've been preaching. You don't become any more righteous by keeping these dietary laws. What are you doing? And to Peter's credit, we see later on, Peter repents. Now, Paul's saying, you're not saved by keeping these laws. And he's going to start to really explain why that's the case. This was the appetizer. The main course, man, is going to be steak and potato. This is thick rich food that we're about to get into. Ribeyes and twice-baked potatoes, man. It's going to be good stuff. Here's what 15 says. He's going to explain. This is why we're not justified by these dietary laws. Here's what he says. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified. Underline that word, circle that word, put a smiley face next to that word. That could be one of the most important words in the New Testament. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, how many will be justified? How many? One more time. How many? By works of the law, no one will be justified. This flies in the face 
of the overwhelming majority of what people think on how they are saved. If I went downtown and asked 100 people, how do you get into heaven? You know what probably 80 to 90 of them would say? Be a good person. That's what they would say. You got to be a good person, be a decent person, and that gets you into heaven. And Paul just said here, nope. Uh Uh-uh. You are not saved because you keep moral rules. You are not saved because you adhere to the moral code of the Old Testament. That is not what saves you. Nobody is justified like that. Nobody. I'll tell you three reasons why nobody is saved by the law. Nobody's saved by just trying to be good enough. Number one, all the law can do is point out your sin. It cannot fix it. It's an MRI. It's not heart surgery. In fact, you know what Paul says in Romans 7? He says, when the law said don't covet, you know what it made me want to do? Covet. (laughs) When the law points out what I shouldn't do, it made me want to go do it. The law actually inflames my desires for sin. The law isn't wicked in and of itself. It just preyed upon my wickedness. The law can't do anything to fix our sin. Number two, you break one law, you're guilty of breaking it all. Paul's going to say that in the very next chapter. Next week, we get to Galatians 3. You break one rule, you break them all. Chad, that's not fair. What kind of oppressive standard is that? You mean to tell me if I'm 99.99999% good, God's not taking me into heaven? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because the standard God has is absolute perfection. And absolute perfection versus 99.99999% those are categorically different. Let me try and explain it differently. If I if I made a delicious Oreo milkshake and I put just the smallest fleck of a dog turd in there. And I said, "Hey, this is delicious. It's 99.99999% delicious wonderful Oreo milkshake." But man, little Bootsy, just a little dog turd got in there. You'll barely taste it. You would not take it. Those are categorically different, right? That's the problem. God's standard is perfection. And in even the smallest infraction, it is categorically not perfection. You break one rule, you break it all. How oppressive and heavy is that? That's the idea. Yes, this is the demand of the law. It is oppressive and heavy. Number three, this one's going to offend a lot of you. It's about to get uncomfortable. Number three, Isaiah the prophet says, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. You know how the Hebrew actually reads? Your righteous deeds are like menstrual rags before God. When you're nailing it, like on your best day, when you are the most moral, best version of yourself, your righteous deeds are offensive. They're foul before God. Why? That doesn't sound okay. Why, God? I'm trying my best. Cut me some slack. I'll tell you why. Because we're really good at doing the right things the wrong way. Let me say that differently. We're really good at externally looking moral, but inwardly having ulterior wicked motives. This was Jesus' biggest gripe with the Pharisees. You guys, you guys make it look like you're so righteous and moral, but I see into your heart. 
Like you make this big show of praying in front of all these people. You pray for hours and hours on, on, on end. But it's not because you want to commune with God. You want those people to think that you're moral and righteous. You're selfish. You're wicked. This is why the law can't save us. It only points out sin. We break one rule. We break them all. Our, our best righteousness is, is filthy rags before God. The question becomes, well, then how are we justified? This word justified is, is so beautiful. In the Greek, it, it is a legal term. It refers to a judge banging the gavel, and, and the judge is issuing both a passive sentence and an active sentence. The judge declares the defendant, you are innocent. That's the passive sense. You are innocent. There is no guilt on you, but then you are also actively righteous. Some of your translations may have even said there, we are not counted righteous by keeping the law. So how are we justified if it's not by being good enough? You ready? I'm going to tell you a verse. It's a verse I've told you up here many times before. Lord willing, I'm going to keep beating us over the head with this verse. I think it's the clearest gospel verse in the entire New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm going to say it to you. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. For God, the Father, made Jesus, made him, who knew no sin. This is monumental. You know the law that crushes us, the law that oppresses us, that we all fail in keeping? You know who didn't fail in it? Jesus took on human flesh, felt temptation just like we do, was tempted by Satan directly, kept the law perfectly in action, motivation of the heart, thoughts, Kept the law perfectly. Jesus nailed it. 100% on the test. A plus. No dog turd in the milkshake. Nailed it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. This means the father treats this spotless lamb, this one who is without sin, treated him as if Jesus had done all my sin. Leviticus, a book I know you all love dearly. Leviticus 17 writes, there is a blood debt for our sin. Leviticus 17 makes it clear. Without the shedding of blood, no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus then pays this blood debt, and he's slung up on that cross. He bleeds out, suffocates for six hours. God the Father is pouring out his justice and wrath on the spotless Lamb of God, for my wrongdoing, for all of our wrongdoing. You say, Chad, that's savage. That's barbaric. What kind of good God would demand blood like that? What kind of bloodlust does your God have? The importance of this is that if, if God doesn't penalize sin, if he doesn't punish someone or something for sin, he is no longer just. We have defied and rebelled against our maker. That's treason. 
If he just wipes that away, just tries to sweep that under the rug, he is no longer just, and Satan has reason to condemn him. But now that justice has been upheld, God can lavishly extend mercy and grace to us. Like when Satan tries to accuse me, he goes before God, God, did you see what Chad did again? You see how hypocritical and inconsistent he's being? You know what God the Father does? Yeah, I know. See the cross. This is why Romans 8 says there's no charge against God's elect. Who's going to bring a charge? Who could condemn us? The most high God is the one that paid our penalty. But it gets even sweeter. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him a new no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So you remember how Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly? That perfect execution of the law is credited. The Bible uses the language, we are clothed. Like foreign clothing, clothing not of our own making, has been laid upon us when we come to Jesus by faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to come to Jesus by faith? It is not just intellectually understanding this. It's deeper than that. And the best way I know how to describe it, it's like, it's like you're betting. Like if you're at the poker table and you're putting all your chips in on Jesus. That's a gutsy move. It's not just understanding intellectually how this works. Your soul goes, Jesus, I'm all in on you. I'm not hedging my bets with anything else. My soul is taking rest. My soul is taking refuge. My chips are all in on you, Jesus. I am betting on you. My salvation portfolio isn't diversified. It's all in on you. That's faith. We are justified when we put all the chips in on Christ. Our sin, our penalty, the blood debt that is over us paid fully in Christ. And now his righteousness is draped on us. So when I stand before the Father, if I'm able to speak at all, you know what I'll say to him? The only reason I could ever be here is not because I was good enough. Your son, your son paid my penalty. Your son bled for me. It's by his wounds I'm healed. And it's by his righteousness that he transferred to me that I I could have any hope of being here. This is how we're justified. Not by you trying harder. Not by you being good enough. Not by you trying to guilt trip yourself into more and more morality. You're not saved like that. Now, if you're hearing me, if you're really hearing me, if the Lord's been gracious and has given you ears to hear, there should be some conflict in you. There should be something in you that goes, I don't know, Chad. It can't be that simple. I don't know, Chad. If Jesus has forgiven all of my sins, if he's paid the debt for me completely and covered me in his righteousness, What's to stop me from just going out and sinning all I want? Is anybody thinking that? Anybody feeling that? You should be. That tripped me up for years. Because I know myself. 
I remember hearing this kind of gospel preached, this kind of lavish forgiveness, all sin atoned for. And I remember going, it can't be that. Because if that's true, I'm going to walk out of here and party my face off. If God's forgiven everything, I have nothing to contribute. I'm going to go do whatever I feel like. This is what Paul anticipates in Romans 6. He anticipates it in the next verses. What then shall we say? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. And he's going to anticipate it here. You should be feeling this. Because if you are feeling this, you're understanding the full scope of forgiveness. You're understanding, dude, Jesus paid it all. So where does obedience fit? Where does holiness in the life of the believer fit? Let me try to show you. Paul's ready for it. 17. Look at what 17 says. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So that's a little bit difficult in the English. Here's what Paul's saying. If we go justified by Christ, not through the works, and we somehow stumble, which let me spoil the surprise. You're going to sin more. You're going to. So we go to Christ, justified by Christ alone, and then we go out and sin. Does that mean Christ is encouraging our sin? Does that mean the gospel is giving us license to go sin? Here's what Paul says. Certainly not. 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So here's what he's saying. If I go back to the law that only enslaved me, only inflamed my desire for sin, my righteousness is filthy before God in that system. I prove myself to be an idiot, to be a sinner. I'm like the dog that goes back to its vomit. Look at 19. 19 and 20. Dude, this is so rich, so good. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's what Paul's saying. It is like I have been vicariously crucified with Christ. I, Christ was not, or Paul was not actually crucified with Christ. He wasn't one of the guys up on the cross. That's true, right? What Paul's saying here is when I put my faith, when all the chips are moved in, it's counted as if I vicariously died with him. So my old sinful self is slaughtered on the cross, buried in the ground. And when Christ resurrected from the dead, it's like I have vicariously resurrected with him. And he makes the most mind boggling statement, especially for Jews. God, Christ is living in me. Like, you know, the, the Jewish high priest, one time a year it could go before God, and if they went before God in an unfit way, boom, they were dead. And Paul's just saying, that God with all that power, with all that might, the one that you had to put on hockey pads to go before, he now lives in you. So here's the argument. Paul's saying, if I go back to the system that only inflamed my desire for sin, condemned me, I couldn't keep the law, if I go back to that, or if I go to the one who has wiped my sin clean and the very fulfillment of the law 
himself, the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. He's living in me. Which system do you think is going to lead to holiness? Which system? One leads to hiding from God, leads to shame, leads to guilt. The other one leads to freedom and a divine power to combat sin. I was talking with somebody last night, and it was such a cool conversation. Uh, She goes, "Uh, Chad, I'm just struggling with it because I know myself. I know that if Jesus has forgiven me of everything, I'm going to go sin. And I said, hey, you know what? I did. When I heard this, I went out and sinned. But can I tell you something? Something changed in me. Because my sin, it was not comfortable anymore. I I did not enjoy it like I used to. Something had changed in my soul. I didn't delight in it. I woke up the next morning bothered. And can I tell you, the stuff I used to mock about Christianity, I found myself starting to enjoy it. I used to crack up when I would see people raising their hands in worship. Look at these goons. Here I am, like a couple months after hearing the gospel, tears and down my face, Jesus, I can't believe you're awesome. The things that I used to mock, God's now leading me into a delight of. I found myself, all of a sudden, this book was starting to open up in ways it had never opened up before. What used to seem cryptic and dry and boring all of a sudden was like streams of of fresh, cool water to my dry soul. I found that, yes, in the beginning, I I, I started sinning, but God was like, hey, bro, that's not us anymore. Hey, your old self is dead, Chad. I've got better ways for you now. And he started to bother me about my sin. This is one of the best tests to see whether or not the Spirit of God's really in you. Can you sin comfortably? If you can sin comfortably, I'd be very worried. Rather, can you look back over the last five, ten years, and and can you see yourself trending towards more obedience? Can you see yourself trending towards more discipleship? Because that's what the Spirit of God does in us starts to repulse us of our sin and increase our delight of holiness. I I can't believe David in Psalm 19 writes, the law of God is sweeter than honey. It's more precious than fine gold. He's not talking about like the good parts of the Old Testament. He's like talking about Leviticus, numbers, sweeter than honey. That's a work of God in your soul. Is this making sense? Are you tracking with what I'm saying? God is not after you just trying harder. It doesn't work. The gospel is that Christ has forgiven all your sin. Nothing more for you to add. It's done. It's finished. Rest in that. And now, it's not you who live, but it is Christ in you. And brother, sister, I promise you, he is relentless in showing you life that's truly life. He's relentless in teaching you that his ways are better than your ways. If he starts the good work in you, he will be faithful to finish it. So here's how I want to end. There's two groups of people in here. There's those of you who know Jesus. You've walked with Jesus. You you would say yes and amen to Christ alone. 
Like if you put a piece of paper before me, a doctrinal statement, salvation by Christ alone through faith alone, I would sign that sucker in a second. But here's what I find in my heart. I find that as the days go on, as days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, for whatever reason, I start to put more stock in, in certain moral behaviors. That's the drift. That's the drift for all of us. What I want to do today is go, no, let's get back to the gospel. And then there's some of you in here who don't know Jesus at all. You don't know Jesus at all. This is the first time you've heard a gospel. The good news that Christ does all this. I want to give you the chance in just a second to respond to that. And here's your response. It's just like the response of the seasoned Christian. I'm coming to the gospel. I'm coming back to the foundation, Christ alone. He's liberated me from sin, and his spirit is going to teach me what real freedom looks like. Because I just want to spoil the surprise. Freedom is not doing whatever you feel like. That enslaves you to your own sinful passion. Freedom is living life according to the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for them. And, and I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. Go, yes, Jesus, I, I know you. I love you. I've walked with you, God. But, man, I feel like Peter. I, I just, for whatever reason, I kind of tend to drift away from the gospel. And for my friends that are there, right now, Lord, let, let all of us go, no, I'm coming back to Jesus, to the gospel, to Christ alone. What freedom, what beauty, how good you are, Lord. And for those that don't know Christ, they, they've heard the gospel for the very first time. If that's where you're at, there, there is no magical prayer. There is no special words you have to say. It's your soul putting all the chips in. Jesus, I've heard this. I want freedom. I want forgiveness. I want you to change the desires of my heart. And if that is where you are, do business with God right now. Push all the chips in. We love you, Lord. You are worthy. You are good. You are so kind. And I pray these things in your beautiful name. Amen.